Welcome back to the Talking Sportsbooks podcast for 2022. And this year, the program is going to be a bit different because as well as just sportsbooks and literature, we're going to be opening the program up to include all forms of sports media, and that includes film. And that leads us into this month and two equally compelling stories. Firstly, Olympic climber Shauna Coxie talks about her part in a new documentary feature film called The Wall, Climbing for Gold, which follows the journey for elite climbers Shauna Coxie, Yanya Gambrit, Brooke Rapatu, and Mio Nonaka on their road to competing in the Tokyo Olympic Games. The first time, remember, sport climbing had ever been included at the Games. The film is out now, and you can find it on Amazon Prime. And we're also going to be talking to author Rob Goldman about his book, The Sisterhood, which tells the remarkable story of the rise of the USA women's national team from its very early days in the mid-80s when they would literally run out onto the field wearing hand-me-down kit from the men's team up to the Olympic Games in Atlanta 96 and being crowned world champions in 1999. And that group is still widely regarded as the greatest women's team of all time. And what better way to get a taste and feel of that time and those remarkable achievements than to talk to the captain of the 99ers, Carla Overbeck, as she joined me to look back not only at a memorable 1999, of course, but a decade of achievement both on and off the field for the women's game. To begin with, then, Shauna Coxie joined me to talk about the release of the documentary feature film The War, Climbing for Gold, which was released on Amazon Prime. It tells the personal stories of the road to Tokyo 2021. We are living our own life. We take our own path. I do it because I love it. Pressure is something that kind of excites me. Where are you, Brookie? You did it. You made the Olympics. There'll never be another first Olympics for climbing. I would have a place like this just for that one medal. <laughs> Yanni Garnbrett is the best rock climber in the world. Shauna can do the hardest moves and make them look easy. If you want to win the Olympics, you're going to have to beat me, Honanaka. Brooke's relatively young, but also wants to win that gold medal in Tokyo. Anything could happen. As a little girl, I like to climb on everything. I was born into it. I just looked at my dad and I was like, I want to do that. Climbing's really the ultimate sport. It tests every element of human performance. It's about exploration. It's about discovery. Climbers have got to slay all the dragons. My biggest obstacle is my mind. My perfectionism can destroy me. She is struggling with shoulder injuries. She's gone from an elite athlete to almost unable to walk. I have to choose how much suffering I want to do for it. This outbreak is becoming a pandemic. 
everything is closed. Nobody is allowed to train. The world went apart. This is definitely a situation have to be 100% there, 100% focused. Every mistake could be massive, it could cost you everything. When you're competing, it's just you and the wall. Well, this film or documentary, I think, really fully encapsulates the, the Olympic spirit and ideology and what separates it from the stream of behind-the-scenes, all-access uh, films we've seen of late, usually at football clubs, is within seconds you know that what you're dealing with here is a real story with real people. Yeah, definitely, and also the kind of suffering that goes along with that um, and the challenges that we all faced and they were all so personal to each of us but of course there was just so much going on at the time and then on top of that we all had our own personal challenges as well so I think it's really captured kind of our perseverance throughout that time. Now, lots of athletes and players when recounting their rise to start and talk about how they took to the sport at an early age and here we actually see it on some wonderful home movies, beginning with Yanya Gambrick climbing all over door frames unaided, doing 360-degree turns, and she couldn't have been any more than about four or five. She really did, at that age, have the look of somebody that was going to do great things in this sport. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, you see all four of us as as young children um, just embodying what the spirit of climbing is all about and that joy and that love for it. And, you know, that continues through into our careers. And that's kind of why we're able to do what we do. And I think in climbing, it's such a natural thing to do. You know, as a kid, you want to climb all over the place as we see Yanya climbing all over the door frames. And that doesn't go away as you get older. It's still part of our nature as human beings to want to climb, um, just maybe not to an elite Olympic level always. <laughs> and we see you as well, don't we, aged four, starting your road to glory. What was it like going through all of those home movies? And did you actually know uh, that they all existed? So that movie, I knew it existed, but we we just we kind of got lost in, um, I guess, the memories and, you know, in the house and whatnot. Um, so my family actually managed to dig it out for this film. It's never been seen before publicly. So it's really nice that that's part of the film because it's so much part of my journey. And with me retiring from competition to focus on rock climbing, it felt like an important time to share that. Uh, the 2019 World Championships had new meaning to it, didn't they? Because the event served as a qualifier for the first ever appearance at an Olympic Games. How did you feel when you found out that your sport was going to be in an Olympic Games? 
So interestingly, when I first found out that climbing was going to be part of the games, I was actually not that excited because the way it had been put forward was as a three discipline sport, combined sport, which didn't really exist before um, before the games. And there was reasons behind that. The International Olympic Committee gave my federation one medal. So they could either choose one of our sports or combine all three and showcase the best of competition climbing, which is the right decision. But as an athlete, it was so hard to kind of go from a single discipline athlete, take on two new sports and then see whether it was possible to qualify and there was just so many uncertainties and unknowns heading into that world championships because we'd never had a combined event before and suddenly you're at the first one it's the olympic qualification you don't know where you're at you don't know where anybody else is at so there was just so much going on um so to qualify at that event it's still one of the most magical events i've ever done and it was so overwhelming and intense it was nine days competing in 11 days and the Japanese crowd are incredible. So yeah, it was so surreal. As you had this dual agenda, was it easy to separate the two, i.e. competing for a world title and qualifying for an Olympic Games? To be honest, it was all about the Olympic qualification. I think at that point, you know, I'd had a lot of success in my career. Um, I'd won two overall titles, 11 World Cups and at that point, it wasn't about the World Championships. It was all about the Olympic qualification. And in all honesty, I went to that event for the experience to kind of see where I was at. And my focus and all my training was leading up to the next selection event, which was due to be, I think, four months later. So it was all about gaining the experience of doing a three discipline event and the intensity around that, um, seeing where I was at. And then suddenly it kind of became clear that it was possible to qualify there. So there was a bit of a shift in mindset there, but I was actually really ill at that event as well. I had the flu. So there was a lot of kind of, when I say it was unexpected, it was really unexpected when I did qualify. Uh, Brooke Ruffert, who perhaps had the, the most to live up to, I think, didn't she? With a family that competed at a very high level, her mother had had success. She was at the very first World Cup back in 1989. Yeah, and, but I also think it came at a really good time for Brooke. You know, it was when she was coming onto the scene. She didn't have like the breadth of experience that say Yanya, myself and Miho had. So she was much younger and could kind of come into it with, there was expectation from kind of history of her family and upbringing, but not from her own personal performances. And I think it was such a good time for her to be hitting her stride, you know, heading into that event, qualifying and then going forward into Tokyo. And, and my heart still breaks for her in Tokyo. You know, she was so, so close to a much better performance. And I know she like that, that was hard for her. Um, like the foot slip on the lead route was, yeah, was really painful. And I think she's got a lot more to give to competition climbing. I can't wait to see where her career goes. We see Mio as well in the home movies, and you really could see very early on in her life as well what winning meant to her, literally. If she didn't get what she wanted and she didn't win, you used to see these great movies of her stomping off down the road in a huff. Yeah, Mio has always been someone who, you know, she wears her heart on her sleeve and you can really see the emotions that she's going through. And she's so incredibly passionate. And she's so incredibly hardcore as well. She's come back from some really nasty injuries and proven herself time and time again. She also comes from one of the most successful nations. You know, Japan has such a strong scene for climbing. So even to make it onto the Japanese team is a challenge. And then to stay up there and keep 
qualifying for event after event. Um, yeah, she's a really resilient person. The Japanese have done so well at those world championships. They had to extend the qualifying places for the Olympic Games. And Brooke had to wait to see if she would make it into the Olympic Games because she didn't finish in a direct qualifying position. And you had those agonising moments. You see her parents walking up and down corridors, waiting for the moment when she finds out if she is qualified. Uh, it was such a tense moment and like I'm good friends with Brooke and I desperately wanted her to qualify and we were all stood around at the venue and it's probably the most tense moment I've ever experienced just that uncertainty and the unknown and to I think when we finally found out she had qualified there was just so much disbelief because of the circumstance um so yeah it was it was really special but also just so so strange uh, your road to qualification was becoming increasingly more fraught, wasn't it? Because you had to overcome serious injury, first to your knee, your cartilage. And as you say at the time, what the doctor did, you went from elite athlete to one that couldn't walk or even train. Yeah, definitely not an ideal setup heading into, into the games. And also that was just before lockdown kind of first time round. So unfortunately that really set me back because I wasn't able to kind of access physio and, and training and gym and rehab and stuff. So ultimately led to me needing another surgery, um, which, I mean, I've been through injury in my career and it's just part and parcel of what we do, but yeah, it's incredibly frustrating and it makes it a very different journey to the one where you're just aiming for success and, I think in the film you hear my surgeon say he doesn't know if I'd make it to the games. Um, and luckily he never actually said that to my face, which is quite nice because I don't think I needed to hear that. But I think it kind of reflects the true reality of the situation. Then in March 2020, we see that uh, decision to postpone the games for a year. How difficult was it for you and the others to readjust and refocus all of your your training and your life to an event which you'd all been expecting to happen and now it wasn't <laughs> yeah and you know we weren't alone in that i think it was shared with the entire world you know so it was something that felt very real and ultimately we were in the same boat as everybody else and fortunately like we were able to get exemptions to train at a certain point but for those first few months in lockdown having gone from full-paced athlete life training seven days a week multiple times a day to just being in your house full time um, it was definitely an adjustment um, and then processing the fact that the games had been postponed by a year and what that meant and what impact that was going to have like physically but mentally as well um yeah it was a lot to process i think i'm still processing all of that to be honest you have another setback to overcome because after an epidural that didn't quite work your back injury wasn't going to recover and it was decided it would be your last ever competition the olympic games how difficult a decision was that to make to call time on your competitive career in this sport yeah so um the lockdown ultimately led to me needing another surgery and it was during that surgery that um, i had an epidural and then afterwards my back has never been the same so that's something that i'm still dealing with to this day and it's i think the, there were a lot of kind of aspects to me deciding to um stop competition climbing but ultimately that was the one that was out of my control and not being able to 
know how much I'm going to be able to train and how much I can push my body. It's, yeah, as a professional athlete, that's not a place you want to be in. Everybody, it seemed, was having their struggles. Brooke was also finding it difficult to cope. She'd gone back to college and there was an interesting quote from her. She said, I never really felt that I could be one of the best. Yeah, which, I mean, I, I think we'll definitely see that, that attitude change in the next few years if it hasn't already. I think Brooke um, is slowly realising that she not just can be, but she is one of the best. Um, and it's been such a privilege to spend a short amount of time on the circuit and training with her and seeing where she's going to go. But I just can't wait to see, you know, like I said earlier, what she does next. In terms of the sport, Yanya seemed to be struggling the most. Her form completely left her for the first time. This seemingly unbeatable look very fallible. And you really didn't know as you followed the, the pictures of her training with her coach, whether or not she would get back to the form that had won her so many world titles in the past. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's really easy to sit back and watch competition and to see someone like Ganya perform well time and time again. And you, it's, it's easy to forget that, you know, she's a human being and she has real emotion and she like has struggles the way we all do. And I think this is kind of the first time in this film that we, we see her being human, you know, um, and she works so, so hard for her success. And it's, it's again, easy to forget that when you just see her on top of the podium time and time again. And I think it's important for people to realize that she didn't just wake up one day and get really good at climbing. And that's why she's winning all of these events. She puts the effort and she puts the time in and she's the most dedicated and passionate person on that stage and that's reflected in her performance and in her results so you get to the olympic games but this is a very very different olympic games of course because there are no spectators did it actually feel that it was a lesser olympic experience than it should have been and how easy was it to perform in front of nobody yeah i think we were fortunate in some respect to not have had any previous games, you know, it was climbing's first Olympics, so we had no comparison to make. Um, but for sure, not having a crowd there, not having your friends and family be able to come out. And also, I think right up until the, the moment we were actually climbing, it didn't feel like it was going to happen with so much uncertainty surrounding, like, the state of the world, you know, so... Um, it was just really bizarre to be in that circumstance where you're preparing for something, but you've also prepared for something before and it's not happened. So there's that in the back of your mind. But for me at that time, my goal was to climb and just to actually be able to get off the ground. And I think everything I've been through and actually a few days before the event, I tore my meniscus in my knee and there's a debate whether I should compete or not at that point. Um, but after everything I'd been through to get there, there was no way I wasn't going to be getting on the wall. So, um, yeah, it was a really interesting experience for me because I'd gone from training for success, from winning a medal at the selection event to genuinely being satisfied if I could climb at all. So that's quite hard to articulate and to get across to like the public and even to my friends and family, you know, that if I can climb, this is my version of success. So I was really satisfied with how it went. It was just sad that it was under those circumstances and 
wasn't the year earlier. <laughs> what we do get to relive is the drama of the competition. Everybody had setbacks to overcome, and we had that nail-biting conclusion with Yanya and Mio going for gold. Definitely, and that's what competition's all about, isn't it? Like you want to see a battle, you want to see kind of a fight for that podium and a fight for the the gold medal, and ultimately that's what it came down to, you know. And I think even on the qualification day, we saw Yanya fall off a lot earlier than expected on the lead route, which is her preferred discipline. So that just added so much tension going into the final, and so so much more excitement, I guess, as a viewer, um, and I'm sure so much more anxiety for the athletes themselves, but. Yeah, it's such a magical moment for our sport. It's such an important moment for our sport. And I'm glad that it was represented in the way it was. And I'm really glad Yanya won the gold medal. You know, no one deserves it more than her. I think that the IOC deserve a lot of credit here is looking to the future and to keep the games relevant to a new younger audience and generation who want sports that are more relevant to them. So we saw surfing, we saw skateboard, we saw three on three basketball, we saw sport climbing, all very successful inclusions in the games. Yeah, and I think it was in that, you know, it's represented that it was time for a change and time for new sports to come in. And I think it is really important that new sports that are growing in popularity are represented and that we get the opportunity to be part of the games. And like just being at the games and seeing the other athletes, so many were really excited about the new sports. Like everyone already knew about climbing and surfing and skateboarding and wanted to chat more about it. And it was just such a buzz around kind of around the new sports and what they were about and how they were working, you know, every TV had like our new sports on it and people were gathered around watching, coming up and asking us questions about it. And it was just really surreal and really exciting to be part of it all. And lastly, what have the months following the Olympics been like for you personally? Because for one, your profile is now significantly higher, of course, after all of the television coverage. <laughs> I'm not sure it, it's blown up too much, luckily, and I think I can stay under the radar a little bit still. But um, yeah, it's just such a privilege. And I am really passionate about sharing climbing with the world and, and the community and getting as many people on the wall as possible. It's such a natural sport for us to do. And it's so different to other sports. You are using your brain so much problem solving. And it's just something we are like destined to do you know as, as kids we want to climb like I said earlier and it's really cool that so many people are seeing climbing because I first saw climbing on the tv and that's how I got into it so you know with films like The Wall more people are going to see it more people are going to try it and find something that they're passionate about so yeah it's just it's such a huge privilege to be part of this film and be part of sharing my sport with the world. Well, that was Shauna Coxie talking to me about her part in the new documentary feature film. It's called The Wall Climbing for Gold, which is available now on Amazon Prime. Now, moving on from performances of outstanding individuals to the performance of perhaps the greatest ever women's team, the USA Women's National Team, is the subject of Rob Goldman's book called The Sisterhood which tells the story of the rise of the USA women's national soccer team from uh, very humble beginnings indeed back in the mid-1980s. And that rise to Olympic champions in 96 in Atlanta and culminating 
with that World Cup win on home soil in front of, what, 95,000 people in 1999. Rob joined me a couple of days ago to talk about his new book. The surprising thing for me, and I, I know quite a bit about this team because I, I covered the uh, the team on TV over here, so I've sort of grown up a bit with them. But what is a surprise for most people is that they've been trying since 1972 to get a US women's national team, and there wasn't a lot of interest. No, there was zero interest, and it, it pretty much took... Uh, well, it was a team effort. There was a there was a, a there was a bunch of advocates, some women advocates, back in the '70s after Title IX, of course, that you mentioned, 1972, when you know women's sports was now you know, a requirement in the, in the universities, and there was the there was a first goal of trying to get the women and uh, soccer team in the Olympics, and that didn't go well, and it it took to 1985 to get some real traction going. And that happened uh, again with these advocates. The the national the women's national team was invited to the to the, uh, the there really wasn't a national team. It was a bunch of w- women players who joined together at the Olympic Sports uh, Festival in uh, in Louisiana, and they got the green light to go to this uh, international. Uh, a tournament called the Mundelito Cup in Italy. And so they literally, they scrounged together the best women's players at the tournament, gave the coaching, head coaching job to a guy named Mike Ryan, who was a Seattle club coach. Uh, Seattle at the time had, the, had probably had the best women's teams in the, in the United States. And they basically pooled together these women, selected them at the end of the tournament, to, to join a, a practice squad in in, uh, in Long Island, New York, and next thing that they know, a week later, they were thrown on an airplane to to Italy to, to join the Mendelito Cup, and that was the first international play that these women had, and they literally got their butts kicked because at the time, the women in in in, in Europe they they played pretty rough and. These women, they didn't know that. Yeah, they played Italy and Denmark and England, yeah, didn't they? Yeah, and they got, they held their own, but the, they they just couldn't handle the, the physicality, particularly of the Italians. And they survived it. They got a tie out of it, and they lost the other two. But they they survived. And from there, Mike Ryan was let go, and then everything changed when they brought in Anson Dorrance. You know, what I liked about that story, by the way, about the, the Mondialito uh, Cup, was the fact that there was there was no backup whatsoever, and the the kit literally was was a hand me down, wasn't it? It was old kit that belonged to the men's team. It was a men's team. Everything was ten size too ten sizes too big. They had the players. Uh, they had a, a like a equipment manager uh, and a, like a, a helper who did the laundry, they sewed on some decals or some patches, you know, threw them in the washer and patched up the holes and <laughs> put them on. And that was it. That was the, the, the kits were, yes, they were the men's, men's team from somewhere. 
The other great, uh, the other great story was the fact that they didn't know what to do with the national anthem. The national anthem started playing, and they didn't know whether they were supposed to sing or not until Mike Ryan got out there and said, "Listen, it's an honor to be there. Sing." Yeah, it was like they never really. A few of them had sung the national anthem, but not everybody did. And I think it was during some practice or something that he just chewed out. Michelle Akers gave me this great story and how you just start chewing. Look, you are the American team. You represent the United States. You stand, you, you shout the national anthem. And, and Michelle said he was just spitting and just foaming and just, it was really, because he was a, you know, he understood America. He, you know, he came out, he came from uh, Ireland. He understood the freedom of America. And he just had blasted these, these women. Some of them did know were like uh, Emily Pickering told me she she was aware of it the national anthem but you know you're standing there and all of a sudden they play the national anthem what do we do okay well we'll stand there and sing it or do we say it or it was just all these new things coming at them <laughs> mile a minute what about um, Anson uh, Anson Doris took over didn't he from from Mike Ryan uh, this was an interesting choice, wasn't it? I mean, you look into his background. This is a guy whose heroes, as you say, were Winston Churchill, Rudyard Kipling. He was born in Bombay, he was schooled all over Europe, spent time with the Jesuits, and they uh, that was no walk in the park either. And he was going to be a lawyer. And then he finds himself at the head of the women's national team. Well, he he, he literally blazed the, blazed the whole trail for everything. You know, he... He got the first really good women's team. Like you, you said, he was going to be a lawyer, but then he started coaching club teams in Carolina. And a couple of the girls at uh, club teams at Carolina said, can we, can we, can we form a team? And he, he said, so we went to the athletic director and that's how the first college team under Na Anson Dorrance was formed. That was in the seventies, 76, I believe. And from there, you, you mentioned you know, he was a strange choice, but really he wasn't because it took a certain individual, a really pro-American, very aggressive, who wanted to win more than anything else, and a very articulate guy who could who could who could word his his feelings to these women. And it took a guy like Anson Dorrance, uh, you know, it, it took a, a, a trailblazer, a real, you know, a pioneer to get this thing going. Anybody else couldn't have done it. Mike Ryan couldn't do it. So they gave it to, to Anson Dorrance, and he just butted heads with the Federation for, for years. And he, just, he couldn't take it anymore. But he was the one who got this thing on the ground. And First job, he said, it, was to uh, get rid of this dislike that these players have got of confrontation. That was his major goal. Back then, women, you know, it was, they were hesitant to be aggressive. They were hesitant to, to say, I want to win and to put their, their best foot forward. And he just... He, he broke that barrier, uh, and then he then he took on players like Emily Pickering and April Heinrichs, who he didn't need to do that. But that was the real challenge of those early teams: is to say, "Hey, you're women. You have the same athletical needs and drives as men do. You know, let's let's let." He unloosed them, and and, and to and every one of the early uh, early uh, 85ers, 99ers, they told me that Anson push them through those barriers. Again, without Anson Dorrance, I don't think any of this would have happened, at least not as quick as it did. We put in April Hendricks, didn't he, as the, as the captain, and then we started to see that new generation, or the beginnings of that generation, the babies, I think you call them, 
uh, Mia Hamm, Judy Perry, Kristen Lilly, Joy Fawcett. Uh, but Mia Hamm was the uh, was a standout star at uh, 14 years of age, and it was a big gamble for him to start to let go some of the the first generation to bring through the kids. Exactly, and it was a big gamble, and it didn't go well with the Federation. It didn't go well with the veterans. The veterans were ticked off. Uh, Michelle Aker said they were, you know went up went up to the dorm room. They were throwing their beer cans against the wall because Anthony. He had a he has he has a great soccer um, IQ, and he saw that the future was with these babies, like you said, the, the Fawcetts, the the Mia Hams, the Julie Foudies, the uh, uh, Christine Lillies, and a, a year later, uh, Carla Overbeck. He said, "This is the future," and not with these older players who were talented. But he took a big gamble, and he almost got fired over it. But he, he, he gambled on these. They were all teenagers. Like you said, Mia Hamm was in mm. high school. He picked her up at some tournament. In, in, she was 14. Yeah. And she, he found her on a, advice from a coach uh, in, in Metairie, Louisiana. He, took, he looked at her in the first five minutes of the game. And he says, that's Mia Hamm? Yes. And he signed her right there. And then he took her in, brought her to the East Coast to a high school in, in uh, Virginia, and just mentored her all the way through until she got to uh, Carolina a couple of years later. I mean, this stuff's unheard of. He takes, takes uh, uh, and Christine Lilly was the same age. And, uh, you know, he just, he had this incredible antenna for, for talent. And uh, it was a, a, a gamble, especially if you, you consider what type of team that he was trying to put together. His team, as he said, I think these were his words, we're going to model a, model a team by being physically aggressive, high-pressing, focusing on one-on-ones all over the pitch. And that is a lot to ask of what are young kids. Well, at the same time, though, Tim, they were open to it. The young kids were open to this new, new, uh, new ideology. Had they been any older, maybe not. But they didn't know any, they didn't know any better, so they listened to him. And he got them one-on-one in practice, four-on-fours in practice. He made them tough and aggressive. And they just entered the system that way, whereas maybe the, the older veterans didn't learn that way. But also, I could also say those older veterans, they were very rough and tumble. They could probably handle anything. But, but he designed those early teams after him, himself, like he said. Like you say he was an imperialistic, uh, Winston Churchill guy, aggressive, 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 um, very- well, the results stood up, didn't they? 1990-91, they were 17 unbeaten. Yeah, and it, it shocked the world. I mean, they, they couldn't figure out how uh, an organization, the U.S. team, could from, go from literally nothing in 1985 to be the best team in the world in 1991. Credit Anson Dorrance, credit, credit these babies, credit some of these rough and tumblers who, who, who just over, overhauled the whole system. And it's taken years for the Europeans to catch up with them. They're, they probably caught up with them now, but it, for a long time they didn't. But that was all Anson Dorrance's ideology of push, 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 four, three, four, you know, tough one-on-one soccer. If they hit you, hit, hit them harder. I mean, he was a very interesting guy. Um, Could do with him over at Tottenham at the moment. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Listen, they went through Haiti in that uh, CONCACAF qualifier on the way to the, the World Cup in 91. And again, another indication here of the of the standing 
of the women's game at that particular point. I mean, it was staggering when I read this. They've got a 50-hour flight to China because, I mean, it was almost like a bus. They got on at JFK and then they're stopping off all over the world to pick up everybody else before they land. Yeah, they stopped off in Europe to pick up the Germans and the Swedes. <laughs> they all joined together on the same plane and they weren't in first class. Like you said, it was 50 hours and everybody's on the same plane eyeing each other because in a couple of days they'd be killing each other on the pitch. And then get this, Tim, as soon as they land, Anson doesn't take them to the hotel. He takes them straight to the practice field. They literally got off the plane after a 50 hour ride and got to the practice field and did their two-hour training, and they went back to the hotel and ate dog and pig and whatever they eat in China. I mean, it was just <laughs> absolutely... It, it's, it, you'd think it'd be fiction, but it was true. I mean, these, They did take their own chefs, though, didn't they, to make sure, I think it was Kristen Lilly says it, to make sure we didn't lose weight. We bought plenty of rice, peanut butter, and jam yeah, well, because uh, we needed it. That was Carla Overbeck's uh, fiancé. Carla, she was Carla Warden. It was a uh, Overbeck was her husband's name, and he ran a restaurant in Chapel Hill. And so he he brought in it came came a little late, but they brought in the they brought in the spaghetti which they need for carbs, and they brought in you know the oatmeal, and they just they weren't able to survive on the China food because it was mostly they they were keep getting sick on the dog and ox whatever else they were eating. It was just the the Chinese though this was. This was a big event over there. They declared the whole thing a public holiday, and then they gave all of the uh, the people that were going to the grants, they were saying, listen, you will be designated teams to support, so go and cheer them. Yeah, and they were, Tim, they were factory workers. They weren't necessarily fans, and they were assigned special areas, and like you said, given flags and teams to cheer for. And you know, for the final, there was like 70,000 factory workers cheering whatever team they were supposed to cheer uh, but they did a good job evidently they they cleaned up the streets and they had parades and it looked it looked it looked pretty good but like you said they weren't the true fans they were the factory workers that were forced to go to the games now before they they got to that final to face uh, Norway when there was what 60 63 64,000 fans in uh, for that game but it was the culmination of a quite extraordinary um, physical test. Six games in 11 days. I mean, you'd be laughed at with a schedule like that. It simply wouldn't be allowed these days. And again, playing his favourite formation of the time, which was 4-3-4. Yeah, it was, it was a matter of survival for, for all the teams because all the teams were in the same boat. You know, they were just crushing players. You know, like you said, the schedule was just brutal. And... Uh, April Heinrich said it was their conditioning that got them over the hump, and that's why they won because they survived longer than than Norway did. You know, and interesting. What separated us, they said, was our mentality. We were more uh, demanding than ninety nine point nine percent of the teams we faced. Um, we were basically intimidating with and without the ball. Right, and that was purely through Anson Dorrance channeling his philosophies through captains like you know april heinrichs and then of course michelle akers came into the picture then it, it was just an incredible time and if you I mean, when you read that's why i was drawn to the arc of the story of this thing it was like what 
you know, you know, people complain about things today about rough things and you know uh, scheduling, but man, but these women didn't complain. They were just happy to be there and and play soccer on a high level. They really were- and let's forget. Let's not forget, by the way. I would love to have been at this. The FIFA PowerPoint presentation of what is allowed at the end of the game if you should win. Yeah, they w- you should not have excessive celebrations, shake hands and then go. Yeah, but that didn't really hold water. <laughs> I mean, April Heinrich said it is hell with the pre- hell with the PowerPoint. They just went nuts after the end of the game and it was total chaos and uh, the way it should be. And uh, there was a banquet, by the way, afterwards. You do mention this in the book. There was a choice of uh, offering, cat, dog, or ox. Yeah, I think they passed on that, and I think they smuggled in some of uh, Pete Overbeck's uh, pasta because, uh, especially Carla Overbeck, she was she was the number one denier of China food. She just didn't, she wouldn't go for it. She would slip stuff on other people's plates. She just... She said there was something on her plate one time and had eyes on it, and she just couldn't handle it anymore. But uh, I think they got... They did make a bit of a deal of this, didn't they, back in the States, because it made front-page news in the Washington Post. That was it. I mean, and it it did make... It made the headline, but it didn't change the culture for women's soccer in in the country. They were still early. You know, it it was kind of a... A niche thing, and yeah, people realized they won the the World Cup, but nobody cared. You know, it was still baseball, football, basketball. It took it took till 1999, or really, it took the Olympics in '96 for uh, America anyway to really pick up on this. But back in '91, like Tony DiCicco said, they came back on the airplane, and there was like four people there to greet them. No press, just some friends, and, <laughs> and that was it. They went back to their colleges or to their day jobs and had to wait another 10 years for, to get some credibility. DiCicco was in in, uh, in 95, the World Cup in, in Sweden. Uh, quite, quite a lot less people following the, the event. Um, but the, the Europeans, completely different because they had leagues, they had the European Championships. Uh, these were some talented uh, players, but they made a pretty good job of it as well, didn't they? Beat the Danes 2-1, they beat the Australians, and then they beat Japan uh, before they came up against Norway again. Yeah, and Tony told me, Tony Chico said that, you know, he just, he made some mistakes. He was still coaching Anson's philosophy, you know, the, the aggressive, like you said, people were catching up. The Europeans were getting more sophisticated. But the Americans in 95, they just kept the same 4-3-4 uh, drive and attack. And it, it didn't cut it anymore. So after that, Tony switched it and it made a more sophisticated play. He put, he put, uh, he put Akers in the front and uh, made her more of a central figure. He just made some adjustments after that because he realized it was probably his fault that they lost because they had the talent. But he just copied Anson a little bit too much and he needed to create his own team and of course he did and the results was 1996 you know uh, there was a lot going on behind the scenes here as well as you move toward the Olympic Games where women's soccer was in for the the very first time nine players pulling out after going against the Federation they wanted uh, more money 
the surprise for some of the people over here would be that these guys, even then, you know, with the game still in its infancy, they were making eighty or 90,000 plus endorsements per year. This is big money. Well, this is where the advocacy of Julie Fowdy came in. This was in 95, like you said. Nine players, the best starter player, the starters, they said no more. You know, we want better condition. They really were not as much they wanted better salary. They wanted conditions. They were tired of going, you know, coach in these, these, these planes. They were tired of eating oatmeal and peanut butter. They wanted to upgrade their, uh, they wanted to be more a first-class organization. And that's what they were really striking about. And they did strike, and that was through the advice of Billie Jean King, who Julie Foudy had met through her organization. And, and, and Julie complained to Billie Jean, said, hey, look, we're, we're getting treated badly. He said, well, you got to strike, Billie Jean says. We do? Yes, that's the only way you're going to be heard. And that's where the advocacy that's continued on today, that's where that began. And they, and they, they, they struck that January, and uh, it was a big deal, but they... They, the, the Federation, they uh, submitted to their, their demands and they got their, they got their wishes. And that was the first step towards equality, which still hasn't gotten there yet. But that was the first step. And that was well, that was good news for a couple of players, though, because Brandy Chastain and Shannon, Shannon McMillan, who, who both nearly missed out, actually got back into the squad. And in that uh, Olympic Games, huge interest. Again, beat the Danes, beat the Swedes, drew with China. But the big, big game was the win over Norway in the semi-final with the goal by McMillan. Yeah. It was it was touch and go. It was over double overtime, and Shannon was trying to get in the game the whole time. And Tony was going, "Get in, Shannon! Get in! No, no, sit down, sit sit down, Shannon!" Finally, he put her in, and uh, she her first touch of the game. It was a, a kick from the sidelines, and then that was Joy Fawcett, right? She headed that ball in, and that. The, the the real World Cup, the real the real Olympic uh, final really was Norway and the USA. And when they won that, they had to go out and beat China. But man, what what an exciting game! And that put Shannon on the map, a super sub. And then of course the next game was China, and then Tiffany Milbert scored a late goal, and uh, they had to hang on for like twenty minutes, but they got they won the championship. And, and Tim, after Atlanta, that's when things started to really shine a little bit because what it did it showed that it showed the federation it showed people in the united states that uh th they could sell out stadiums the united states women could, could sell out stadiums what two hundred and seventy nine thousand saw them in five games yeah unfortunately they didn't see the championship live on tv because they that was incredible yeah. no live television yeah. but the word got out and what really you know we they figured out that okay for the because the '99 World Cup was coming to America and they were going they were scheduled for some East Coast venues you know just keep them there cheap keep everything cheap but then Marla Messing and and Alan Rothenberg says no let's 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 take a gamble on this let's let's open this up to the major venues you know uh, the rose but they did when they got to that final in 1999 the popularity was unprecedented. Uh, because they were at the, the giant stadium 
which was sold out for the opening uh, opening game of the competition. Yeah, and that was they were, the, the team was driving down the bus, going to the Meadowlands, and they're looking out the window and they're seeing all these people, and there was a traffic jam, and they're going, "What's going on?" Next thing you know, they pull up beside the cars, and they're all screaming at the bus, and they're all wearing USA, you know, jersey, ham jerseys, and they have face paint on. It was a, it, it was an organic deal. It was a surprise to the players. They said, "Oh my God." They're coming here for us. And they get there and, you know, the thing sold out and it just carried momentum. You know, they went to Chicago. They went to San Jose for the semis. By the time they got to the Rose Bowl, they were the hottest ticket in the United States. And this is in the middle of summer. There wasn't much going on sports wise as far as the big games. But still beat some big teams there, by the way, Uh, Germany, who were, you know, as we know, a bit of a, a machine. Uh, Chastain own goal in that game, and you you, you did think because I remember uh, that event very well indeed. You thought, well, you know, this is going to be the uh, the the Germans' moment. You know, the USA have met their match, but again, it was it was a remarkable um, a remarkable game that they played. Yeah, that was of course Germany was defending two time World Cup champions, and they got to the Meadowlands, and Brandy did her own goal just just minutes before halftime, which is exactly the wrong time you want to do something like that. But then Brandy said, Carla Overbeck took her and said, hey, Brandy, shake out of it. We need you. We need you. And then Tony was going to think about benching Brandy for the second half. But Carla says, no, no, do not bench her. We need her out there. And of course, who scores the next goal? Brandy Chastain. And so then we run into overtime and then Shannon McMillan again is the hero. It was just a classic. Class- and Bill Clinton was in the stands. That, more, maybe more so than the final, really generated some interest. And after that, it was just lights out. Everybody wanted to be a part of that World Cup and, and, and witness it. And then they went on to San Jose and faced Brazil, which was a tough game. And then, of course... Well, that was the uh, that was the game, wasn't it? Where DiCicco said that the the goalkeeping performance uh, Brianna Scott was the the greatest of any uh, American goalkeeper yeah, ever. Yeah, he, he just she saved the day with this miraculous save after save after save. There wasn't a lot going on offensively with either team, but Brand, uh, Brianna kept her in the game, and then uh, Michelle Akers took the lead with a with a penalty kick, and they kept it. But it was Brianna Scurry's, Brianna Scurry's day, and, but definitely. And from there, they went down to the coast to, to Pasadena, and then ninety thousand one hundred eighty-five or ninety-eight thousand or ninety-five thousand. Nobody can agree on an exact number. What they can agree is that it was about the biggest audience ever for a women's sporting event. Yes, and it was also 90-plus degrees on in the stands and probably 100 on the field. And it was a grueling, grueling double overtime match. And uh, what people told me from that day, it was Carla Overbeck's leadership from the back line that, that kept everybody in the game because people were just dropping, you know, people's feet were burning. And she kept the intensity... And of course, well, they had that bizarre situation, didn't they, with with uh, Akers, yep. who was suffering from this chronic fatigue syndrome, yep. who literally was on the floor at halftime. Yeah. Well, she she collided on top of the uh, her 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 medical differences and injuries. She collided with head head on with Brianna Scurry, and got knocked out. And she's on the on the grass going on. Oh, she's you know gargling. I I could stay. I could stay in. And, and Carla says, "No, you can't even talk 
Michelle. So they pulled her out and uh, brought in a sub, Sarah. Um, what was her name? She 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 was she came off the bench to replace Acres. Oh God! Now you're asking. <laughs> Sarah, I, I got her name. Um, anyway, so it was a mess. And again, Carla says. Sarah, you gotta, you gotta stand your ground here, and she did. But uh, China just went after her and uh, picked on her, and, and they started penetrating, you know, getting close to the goal. And uh, but they hung in there, and again, it was Carla in the back line who was the saviors that day. Not so much the the, the penalty shootout. There was a story, and this is again something that I never heard before. Uh, about Mia Hamm and her doubts about wanting to take a penalty. Yeah, this is a this is a great great deal. Okay, so they, it, it's it's penalty time, and uh, Lauren Gregg, uh, Sarah Whalen by the name was the name of that substitute. Anyways, Laura Gregg has to pick. She, her job is to pick the five penalty shooters, and they had practiced this. They have they they practiced for this moment, and she had her list, and of course Mia Hamm's got to be on the list because she's one of the great players of the world. But Mia Hamm does not like penalty kicks. She doesn't like the pressure of that, and she would have preferred not to. So she asked Lauren Gregg, can I not be on the list? Says, no, you have to be on the list. You're, you're Mia Hamm. Undeterred, during the penalty kick setup, when they're actually on the field, Mia comes up to Shannon McMillan and says, are you taking a kick? And, and Shannon's pretty smart, Alex. She says, yeah, I'm, I'm number 22 after that fat guy in the stands up there. And Mia says, seriously, you know, are you taking it? Yeah, I'm taking one. I, I mean, you want to, I'm taking one. You want to take mine? No, she's not taking one. And Mia says, will you take mine for me? She says, I'll take yours. And then Lauren Gray comes up. No, no, Mia, you're taking it. You're on the list. We can't change it now. So twice Mia tried to get out of that penalty kick. She was number... Four, she was number four and of course she nailed it and set up Brandy Chastain's chance to win it but Mia Hamm did not want to take that kick and uh, she she asked two people on the field if she didn't want to do it so it's, it's it's weird you think Mia Hamm oh yeah the greatest she's she'd want to take one but she didn't she didn't which tells you about penalty kicks it's a mental thing it's not a physical thing and she just didn't feel comfortable but she and they won the day, didn't they? Liu Young missed the uh, the penalty for, for China. Clinton was there again, uh, doing a bit of uh, diplomacy, wasn't he, with the, the Chinese on a, a bit of a trade argument they'd been having, so he was yeah, there. Yeah, he used that as an excuse to be there. I think he wanted to be there anyway, but he, 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 he used that as an opportunity to do some political uh, healing. But uh, him and Hillary both showed up about 10 minutes late, but they were there in the press box, and then when it was all over, they went down the press box. Uh, they went down to the clubhouse and congratulate the players so you know you got the president of the united states you got shalala the secretary of something and anyway and it, it it got a big national boost out of that and boy after that the american 40 million peak tv yeah, audience it's the biggest crowd to attend a uh, women's sports team and the biggest television audience too and they're on the cover of Time. They're on the cover of New Week. They're, you know, they're going on national TV shows. So here's this team who virtually went from nothing. They were eating ox and dog and traveling in these in trains, cool trains and buses and practicing in parking lots with lights from the buses. 
all this and these these women stayed way the stayed the whole way and all of a sudden they're national superstars but tim they, they remained humble they didn't they, they they never forgot their roots and that's that's what's unique about this group and what's really attracted me to write about them they they that i was going to say is you you really have um, you know put not the nail on the head there because Regardless of where you come from in the in the world, if you were watching that um, U.S. women's national team in in that decade, those final five years or four years, the Atlanta Games and and the and the World Cup, you'd admire them. They were likable uh, characters, likable personalities, and you know it was like you know good old American apple pie. I mean, they, they were just they were a great team full of people that you liked. It is a lot different. Now. Yeah, they were accessible, like Tony DeChico. They were the girl, like you said, they were the girl next door. Uh, everybody loved them. They were humble. They were fun. They were charismatic. They were pretty. Now, uh, national team, and it's it's fun. There, but it's it's just hard to root. They're most of the stars are multimillionaires. It's 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 a different feeling about it. The ninety niners, the eighty fivers, the ninety sixers. They were a unique breed, and it took that type of mentality, that humbleness, that work, that American workmanship, uh, you know, lunch pail, go to work. It took that mentality to get from 1985 to 1999. Without that group of women, without those two coaches, DeChico and Dorrance, the whole thing couldn't happen. It's just, that's why I love the arc of the story. It's just, a, it's a rare mix of athletes, the time, the coaches. They all came together in this magical thing, and I don't think Tim will ever see it again. I just don't, you know. I, I will have, we'll have great soccer and great women's soccer, but that '99 team and those players—they're just unique in history, and I think they'll be, their names will be echoed for the next hundred years. I think. Now, after that, what better way to conclude than to talk to the captain? of that iconic team. Carl Reverbeck joined me to look back not only at one memorable summer, but a decade of achievement. How would you describe that squad of players that you joined up with for the very first time back in 1988 and who became part of your extended football family? Our group was an incredible group. We cared for each other and we wanted to win. And we did everything in our power outside of the team to prepare ourselves for when the team got together to train and compete. Now, Anson Dorrance was only 30 years of age when he took over from Mike Ryan. And this was very much a learning process for him as well, because he'd had a little experience of coaching women and it took him some time to learn to differentiate. Yes, um, I think it was definitely a learning process and I was even at North Carolina when he coached both the men and the women and I know uh, he talks about coming to our training sessions after he had been with the men and he was in a bad mood and and sort of um, not treated us poorly but just coached us like he had been coaching the men. I think over time he evolved as a coach and realized that maybe women needed to be treated a bit differently. 
Managing change in a competitive results-based environment is something that is never easy. Anson had made this decision to invest in youth in the build-up to the 91 World Cup. How easy was the transition to this new group that, of course, included uh, you, Christine Lilly, Mia Ham, Joy Fawcett, to name just a few? We... We had seen each other in college. Um, you know, we knew about each other. And I think just finally coming together as a U.S. national team, it was great because we all had that same drive. We all wanted the same thing. And that was to train as hard as we could and to win everything we could. So uh, there you are, qualified for the World Cup final, the very first women's World Cup final in 1991. Of you, though, there was uh, no uh, chartered airlines with first-class service all the way. When you boarded a JFK en route to those finals, you were about to embark on a, what, 45- to 50-hour trip as you flew around the world, picking up all of the other teams that were competing. It, it was definitely interesting, and, you know... We were extremely naive in what we were getting into. We had never competed in a big tournament before in the United States. And so the teams we played against, you know, they played in big competitions, the Euros, and and they did these competitions a lot. And we had no idea what to expect. And it was an absolute eye-opener when we got over to China and there were just thousands and thousands of people watching our games. We had never been in a situation like that. Uh, this was a public holiday as well, wasn't it, for the Chinese people who were all encouraged to actually go to watch the games and they were given teams to cheer as well. So you actually had a support inside the stadiums. Yes, it was incredible. And the Chinese would just cheer for great soccer. And I feel like we played uh, an attractive style. We were dynamic. We were fast. We attacked a lot. And I felt like they were cheering for us every game we played. It was it was truly incredible. How many people, and I include you in this, thought that you would achieve what you did in that very first World Cup, considering the infancy of the game, certainly in the USA? And were you yourselves aware of the history that you were potentially about to make when you stepped out in front of 63,000 people in that final? I'm not sure I knew what we were on the brink of achieving, but when we would drive to the stadiums, I mean, just you look out the windows and, and of the bus and people were on bicycles and they were all you know, fighting to, to get into the stadium. And then once you walk out of the tunnel and you come onto the field, I mean, it was just a feeling that we had never, ever experienced before. It was it was truly incredible. Part of what drove you to that success in those championships was your fitness, which was a big part of Anson's regime. But I suppose playing that high-pressing 4-2-4 formation that he favoured, you had to be fit. Absolutely. And every single player on our team was extremely fit. And we took a lot of pride in how we trained away from the national team. And like like Anson said, and like you said, we had an extremely attacking style and we just went forward at all costs. We counterattacked, and, um, but we were, we were incredibly fit 
And I think that was probably our biggest asset. One of the quotes of the time said, what separated us was our mentality. We were more demanding than 99.9% of all of the teams that we faced. We were intimidating with or without the ball. Is that a fair assessment? Absolutely. And you know, we took it upon ourselves to be the fittest players out, players that we could be. And when we were away from the team, you know, I knew that Foudy and Christine and Mia and Karen Gabero were all doing fitness. And so I felt like, you know, I needed to to do that as well so that I was prepared when I came back into camp. Now, after the success of that World Cup, you would have perhaps thought that the Federation would back the women's game. But your next battle really was to try to convince them that the women's game was credible and but it had a significant future. Yes, you know, when when we got into it, I had no idea how, how big this event would be just because we had never experience with it. And so as players, of course, we we wanted to play the biggest stage and you know, to be in a World Cup final, to be at a, representing your country is is just, I mean, it doesn't get better than that. Huge. That's right. (laughs) How surprised were you when you got back to see your faces adorning the front page of the Washington Post? America, I don't even think, realized that the women, that U.S. soccer fielded the women's team and, and had a women's soccer team. So for us, you know, coming home to no fanfare when we had just over in China and playing in front of 68,000 people um, was really cool. And we wanted to basically become sport in our own country. Now, you knew Anson very well before the national team. Were you surprised when he made the decision to step down? And Tony DiCicco, of course, you knew well because he was the assistant. He stepped in to take over. Yes, I mean, I played for Anson four years in college and he was an incredible coach um was was an unbelievable motivator um, and you know really had the u.s playing in a style that not many countries um, could stop and tony was our assistant coach at the time we knew the transition would be very smooth when he took the team over and um, were very supportive of him in that new role Coming up to the Olympics, the Centennial Olympics in Atlanta, a group of senior players, including you, effectively went on strike to force the Federation into not only paying you properly, but upgrading the whole process of playing for the national team, travel, backup, etc. How far would you have gone to force your case and would you have been prepared to miss playing in the Olympics? Uh, we were fully prepared to not play and we tried to be amicable with the federation and work out a contract that was right um it's not like we were asking for millions of dollars we professionals and not have to seek outside employment to play the sport that we loved and in the united states you grow up dreaming about the olympics and competing in the olympics and so 
strong and we all stuck together and we, you know, we decided that um, if, if there's a possibility, we would have to forego our dream of playing in the Olympics. And for me, it was an easy decision because we were fighting for what was right. And we weren't just fighting for our own sake. We were fighting for the future of women's soccer in the United States and possibly even worldwide. When you look at the Olympic Games, 279,000 people watched you en route to gold in that tournament. It was far though from a foregone conclusion, the big test of how far you'd come as a team in that preceding 12 months was Norway in the semifinals. You'd had so many great games against them and this was the acid test really. Yes, Norway was, they were great competitors. And I feel like both squads got the best out of each other. So after the Olympics, everything is geared toward World Cup success in 99 on home soil. And your popularity as a team and as individuals had risen to a point where you were stars and celebrities in your own right. And not just in the USA either, you were known the world over. You know, that that wasn't our intention. We um, we genuinely liked playing together. Um, and they were pretty good. And uh, playing the sport you love with the people you love is something that we wanted to do for a long, long time. And we just... Now, even with the status that you knew you had... When that opening day arrived and you're playing at the Giants Stadium, were you expecting to see the levels of interest and excitement uh, from the public that you experienced? Or was it, to a degree, still a surprise? You know, it was funny because leading up to the World Cup, the organizing committee really took a chance. And I think originally they wanted us to play in high school stadiums. And for Donna De Verona and Marla Messing, they had a vision that if they got us in the big stadiums, we could fill them. And so when you're driving up and you're, you know, I'm a big football, professional football fan. And, you know, to see that all those people in the parking lot uh, tailgating and they had, you know, our jerseys on and they had signs for us. And it was, it was really, uh, you know, I, I can't even, the feeling that I had, you just looked out and you thought, wow, all these people are here to watch our team play. And then you make the final, all told, just short of 1.2 million people had watched the Women's World Cup. And on that day of the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, over 90,000 fans baking, and you as well, in the 90 degree heat. And at home, a peak TV audience of 40 million. All you had to do then was uh, simply win the game. Not easy either against China. Right. And and it was funny throughout the whole tournament, they kept saying, um, you know, the games are selling out and to fill the Rose Bowl was over 90,000 people. And our press officer, Aaron Heifetz, would come on the bus before training and after training and say, well, they opened up 3,000 more seats and now they're gone. And so um, it it just, it was incredible. And to to play in front of, you know, that crowd um you know not them were cheering for us i i felt like and just the millions watching on tv and it was it was funny because the success i felt was riding on our shoulders and and 
if we weren't in the final, it wouldn't have been successful. And we really felt that pressure. And so when the final came around, finally, um, you know, exhale and enjoy what we had created. Uh, you won, of course, in such dramatic style, Brandy Chastain scoring that winning penalty and then going on to that celebration where she removed her shirt, which in itself then created one of the most iconic moments, photographed moments in women's sporting history. And in the aftermath, how did that success change your lives? It's just, it's it's really nice to and cool to to be a part of it. I mean, people would recognize us um, and they would and they would tell us, you know, I was at a bar watching your game or, or everyone had a story where they were. And um, you don't you don't get tired of hearing it. Um, you enjoy people and you enjoy making people happy. And like I said, just we genuinely liked each other and we enjoyed playing together. And for us to accomplish that as a team, um, you know, it doesn't get any better than that. Well, that is it. My thanks to Carla Overbeck, the captain of the 99ers, Shauna Coxie and Rob Goldman for their contributions this month. And that is it for this program. Don't forget, you can catch up with all of the previous editions of the show via any of the major streaming providers and via the website at www.talkingsportsbooks.com. Thanks again for joining us this month. Until next time, from me, Tim Cable. Bye-bye for now.